And today I want to take a look at two key things. One, a fickle crowd and a forsaken Savior. Um, I know that uh, on Palm Sunday something very big happened. We had the uh, uh, Hosanna group uh, going, Hosanna, hey, here he comes in the name of the Lord, hello, and all that stuff. They're waving their palm branches just like we saw. And we're go- I'm, I'm sure we've been taught, I know I was, that uh, humans, we, are so fickle that by Friday we, we scream, crucify, crucify. How many have heard that before? You have never heard that? You have. Some of you are going, oh. Okay, but yeah, a show of hands means I, actually, I can actually tell that you are engaging and awake. Okay, all right. So that's what I was taught. And we all think, yeah, I guess we're... Lowly people who, you know, struggle and, you know, we can't make up our minds. And so it's a put down on us and our humanity. What if it's not true? What if it's not that story at all? What, what if there's another plausible, and probably it makes more sense, a better perspective on what happened with the people that yelled Hosanna versus the ones who screamed crucify? I want to walk you through that today on Easter Sunday. Because I tell you, the one we call Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, his popularity was bigger than we thought. And what he did for us was even bigger than what we have been told, even in the church. Even with all you and I have learned so far, the perspective of how big the event of Easter is, we still don't know it all. I'm still in awe. I'm still learning the, the, the width, the height, the depth, uh, the magnitude of the love of God being shown through that event because it's affecting so many people. So let's take a look at this. The fickle crowd. Were they really fickle? Well, Jesus arrived to a cheering crowd, but the religious leaders couldn't suppress them. That's what the scriptures say. It, it says a few times they feared the crowds. They feared the crowds. This is a major key to know what's going on in the city. Remember, this little town, I think somebody suggested there was like 50,000 typically in that town, uh, 50 or 60,000, I don't know. Uh, but then it swelled up to like 200, 250,000 people because of the Passover. And there were dignitaries sent there. There were even Herod, the, the Herod that was there, uh, he was, he's Herod of another area. And yet he was there visiting. That's, that's how all the stuff with Pilate came about and because he was already in town. This is a big deal. They sent military personnel because they knew this was going to be big. The the Romans did. And all the normal people are coming, all the Jews, they're they're there to celebrate one of the biggest feasts. So this is a big deal. And the religious leaders were afraid of the crowds. There's two crowds. There were religious leaders and the people. And even the the Jewish uh, groups that lived in Jerusalem, especially the leaders, looked down on all other people, especially the Galileans. They kind of snubbed them. (laughs) Yeah, you're Jews, but you're not like us because we've got the holy city. We know how to do this God thing right. So they were threatened big time. Do you know anybody like that where they think they've arrived at whatever it is and they look down their nose at you? Uh, let's see, even with cars, people do that sometimes. You know, the type of car you have. And if you knew my first car, it was a 73 Super Beetle with a gas uh, heater, gasoline heater in it, which means nothing to anybody, but I just remember that. It was metallic blue. And, and, and I, I, it, got, it was working, except the gas pedal was um, a wire, and the wire had to come up here, and I could... I illegally drove it often, but anyway, 
It's years later, you can tell everybody now. See, Facebook wasn't around back then. Can't get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the religious leaders, and then we have the normal people that were coming, coming to celebrate. Where did Jesus raise Lazarus? Anybody know the town? Vaguely, quickly. Bethany, since you weren't quick enough. So Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. Okay? So here is one of the closest major events that happens. And it wasn't just the people of Bethany that uh, recognized and saw this miracle. It was also the religious leaders. So this is now really, really big, and it's not too far away from uh, the timing of this uh, Easter story of the week. So they were after killing Jesus and Lazarus. Do you remember that a couple weeks ago when we talked about Lazarus being raised from the dead? The religious leaders plotted to kill Lazarus and Jesus because they were a threat to their system, the religious system. And now remember the clearing of the temple? That clearing the temple was not just Jesus being upset with what they were doing, but it was also the means of extra supplemental income to the religious leaders. Okay, It was their bookstore in the front foyer. It was their, their trinket section. It was their, their gold beads that they sold, whatever it was. They're, it's their money-making way, and they always got a cut. So Jesus is attacking the entire religious system, the system that separates people from God. You realize that, the Jewish system. Because you had to, you can only come up to a certain part of the temple, depending who you were. And if you were allowed into the inner courts, you had to be a Jew. But then you had to be extra clean to go in a little deeper. And then only one priest got to go in once a year. It's a really, really special spot. So this is about separation. They, they wanted to make sure separation was in place so that people were kept in check and controlled. It's all a control thing. Does that happen today? Have we seen that in churches anywhere where we have levels of acceptance and you have to act a certain way to be accepted? Seriously, this is what Jesus came to destroy. He came to destroy it and make himself equal with us. This is the love of God. All right, let's take a look at some of the elements that happened here. So Jesus was arrested at night in the Garden of Gethsemane. A couple of things to remember. Why would they need Judas? Why would, why would Jesus, Judas have to betray Jesus, and why did it have to be with a kiss? A couple of factors. In the morning group on Friday, you're going to see it, because uh, you're going to hear Paul Mayer uh, speak about this. A couple of things. It was dark. Okay? How many people can see in the dark? I didn't think so. Uh, very little light. Uh, most of the Jews were bearded, so they all look alike. You know, and there were no glasses available back then. Nobody could see perfectly. They probably squinted a lot, you know. And then you have the light of the fire kind of, people, their faces shift in the, in the fire. Don't, have you sat around fire? So people grow and shrink at the same time. It's weird. But just the way the light hits you. So they needed somebody who really knew Jesus because the guards didn't know what he really looked like. There wasn't Facebook. There weren't pictures put up of uh, wanted Jesus. They didn't exist. So how, in a city of 250,000 swelled up now, can they find this guy? It took Judas to go kiss Jesus on the cheek and single him out. It's a big deal. By the way, court. Court began at dawn. So again, we're talking about the crowds. Fickle crowd versus um, uh, two different crowds. So I believe the crowd that was shouting Hosanna were asleep 
or just waking up, coffee, sure, dear. You know, that's kind of what they were doing. That's, that's how the morning was. They were still sleeping and waking. The leaders gathered all night in secret, and you can read in the scriptures, it said they plotted. What does plotted mean? Did they have just a quick conversation? No, 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 no. They had to plan this thing out. This was a well-planned strategy. And yet, it was slapped together so fast, you're gonna, if you come Friday, you'll hear a lot more detail, and it, it actually makes the story very interesting to, what's, to see what's really going on. So anyway, they gathered together in secret and conspired and plotted, and this all happened at night. Uh, then in Matthew 26, 47, it said when Jesus was arrested, it was a large crowd that arrested. It's that crowd that's screaming, crucify. Not the people shouting Hosanna, waving branches, and all that fun stuff. It was a different group. The actual space the trial was held in. Well, <laughs> you know what? The, how many people fit in here legally? If you know the code, it's 223-ish, something like that. So we know roughly how many people would fill this place. Now, if we move, remove the chairs, you have standing, it's very different. So the court place where Pilate was, when he said, so what shall we do? And they say, crucify, crucify. How many people could have fit into that spot? Well, not a whole city, I promise you. In fact, uh, we need to take a look at uh, how many guards may have been there. And I'm going to show you a quote from Paul Mayer on uh, even just the temple guards, the religious leaders. There's about 10,000 on the payroll for just taking care of uh, policing the Jews and court officials or, or um, religious officials, cleaner-uppers, whatever. It wouldn't take much uh, to conspire and get them all into that, into that place. Now, I'll give credit to the Jesus movie. Uh, I forget what, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember that one? Everybody saw forever and we had to, you know, in the days when we weren't allowed to watch a lot of TV, oh, it's about Jesus. Okay, you can watch it. You know, we got to watch an extra show because it was a bonus. But there was something pretty cool that happened. There was, uh, uh, when they're screaming, crucify, crucify, if you remember this image, there was a, a couple people said, uh, Jesus, give us Jesus, not Barabbas. Do you remember that? They were being poked and prodded by religious leaders. They said, hey, shut up. And they, and they kind of stopped them from screaming. It was a setup. And I think they got it right in that, in that show. That was just really cool. Um, so what happened when Jesus was marching to or walking to the Golgotha? Do you remember? It said the people came out and they, they were weeping. What? This one? This is our Savior? Are you kidding? He's, they, when they saw the cross, they knew this is done. They knew for sure because the Romans were batting a thousand at death. Okay? And they never screwed up death. You want to get death right? The Romans did it. Okay? They, they made sure if you're going to die, you're dead. You might as well, you're, you're done. So here's what's going on. Uh, uh, they wept as they discovered what was happening. Luke 23, 27. That's your big clue. This is the one verse that's not focused on enough to prove it was a different crowd. Uh, verse 27 says, Massive crowds gathered to follow Jesus, including a number of women who were wailing with sorrow over him. They did not know what was going on, what was being plotted all night. They had their kangaroo court overnight, and when dawn happened, because they couldn't have a legal trial if it wasn't in, in the daytime, it had to be daylight or dawn, whatever they call it. It, it was legally not allowed at night. So they had a, a temporary thing, and then it was vetted the next morning. 
Like this all happened rapid fire. Listen, by 9 a.m., 9 a.m., Jesus is being crucified. Friday morning, 9 a.m., that's, that's early. And the point of the cross is to make you suffer. Like, really suffer. But they knew what they were doing. He was up there for, what, six hours almost. Here's what uh, Paul, or sorry. Um, there were three special groups in that Passover crowd. The native Judeans, who were suspicious of Jesus. Those are the ones who lived there. The Galileans, who followed him. And the visitors from outside Judea who did not know Jesus. Now, these Galileans who came for the um, big festival, they had already seen miracles. They had already heard about the miracles. But the Judean ones, the Jerusalem ones, had not per se, except Jesus' popularity increased when he arrived. After the Hosanna, Hosanna, and the temple clearing, what was the one cool little piece of information that you didn't hear before, that I never heard before, that happened after he kicked out all the uh, tax collectors and people and um, those guys? What, what happened in that place? Yes, Lorinda told me about this. I never caught that. So he's healing people in the place where the money changers were. The house was coming back to a place of worship and people for people. So now the locals are starting to say, what? We've, never, we've only heard these stories, but to see this? <laughs> Within the crowd from Judea, Judah uh, were people who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead in John 12. The statement that the crowd that cried Hosanna on Palm Sunday ended up crying crucify him on Good Friday is not true. It was primarily the Jerusalem Jews, influenced by the priests, who asked for his blood. They're the only ones who wanted to kill him because he was a threat. Taken from the historian Paul Mayer's book, In the Fullness of Time, to be sure, some people may have changed their minds about Jesus, but the shouting multitude in front of Pilate's tribunal consisted primarily of the priest-controlled temple staff. Their police alone numbered 10,000, whereas some of the Palm Sunday people were just now getting the news about Jesus. Remember, there was no news, there was no Twitter, nothing. Like, this is, this is morning, heat your water for your breakfast scenario, and then it takes word of mouth to go spreading. So news came about his conviction and rushed to the roadside in tears as in this scene. Less than 5% of that number of the 10,000 um, would have been more than enough to crowd into Pilate's courtyard and serve as a speech chorus of condemnation directed by Caiaphas and the priestly of Jerusalem, whatever, sorry. Forsaken. If we have a problem with the two, the, the idea of um, uh, the one crowd being the, the, the fickle group, now we've just shown you, I think it's a different crowd. It's very likely. And if you've never heard that before, at least now you have a menu item you didn't have, okay, to perceive this. Let's look at this forsaken thing. This is a really big topic because what you believe about this will determine your belief about God, of how you see God. Or let me flip it over. It, it will reveal to me how you see God your description and perception of him is going to come out in how you understand this forsaken. Now, unfortunately, you may have been taught a certain thing, and that's, you believe because that's what you've traditionally heard. In the Western church, we believe God turned his back on Jesus. You know, oh, well, I'm, I want to give you some scripture. I want to show you some things that may give you a better hope-filled perspective 
to make this God we say we believe in, that he's actually a good God, that he did not forsake his son. That's my plan today, show you some spots that'll, uh, in my heart, it, as soon as I heard it, I knew it was true. Just in me, I knew this is absolutely true, because this reflects the bigger and better God that I'm getting to know. This is how it's going. Watch this. Matthew 24, 40, 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, any normal person not knowing anything about history would go, oh my goodness, he feels forsaken, right? Does it make sense? It makes sense to me. I thought that too. But let's take a look at a couple things. Let's deal with some facts first. Is God a trinity? I believe he is. The trinity cannot be separated. It would cease to become a trinity if God separated himself from his son or the Holy Spirit separated himself from the son. They would, the trinity would cease to exist it's a very different mindset. The Father and I are one, John declared. This is before the cross. He's told them, look, the Father and I, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are one. We're in union. Okay? This, is, this was half his sermon, which, drew, which is why he got crucified, technically, because he called himself Son of God, that he was equal to God, which they could not handle. That's why they killed him. He was such a threat. God was in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, listen to this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Where did the reconciliation take place? It's pretty easy. It's Easter. On the cross. Hello. It's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, it's the obvious answer. It's Jesus. <laughs> okay. Here we have a picture of the reconciliation taking place. And the scriptures clearly say God was in Christ. Why do you think the last six weeks of walking through the life of Jesus, we have emphasized Jesus abiding in the Father. God was in him the whole time, being his life, being his wisdom, being his source, being his power and strength. It didn't stop when he got to the cross. God didn't go, well, this part you can do on your own. Good luck. See you on the other side. Didn't happen. The other thing that was going on here, Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 23, and 24. Look them up, read them through carefully. They are the messianic psalms. These are the ones that point to Jesus. Now, there's a couple things that could be happening, but here, here he says, Jesus' cry was the first line of a song, David's Psalm 22 in which it's recorded, he did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. That's in verse 24. We'll get to that at the very end if we have time. But here's something powerful happens. Jesus is screaming out Psalm 22, the first line. How many of you know songs uh, from the very first line? You hear a song play, go, ah, I know that song, you know? Uh, Here's a dumb one. My ringtone on my phone is Jeremiah was a bullfrog. And as soon as you hear it, you know, yeah, you know the song, you know? Or another popular song, the first line, you know exactly what it is. Just because you don't even you don't have to say anymore. You just, okay, I know that song. You, you kind of have the rest of it in your mind. A certain poem that you know. 
the Deserata. Most people know that one. If you don't, that's fine. Um, but it, you say the first line, people will know what it is. In Jewish culture, they knew the Psalms by the first line. They didn't per se have numbers. Otherwise, they're, he'd be going, 22! <laughs> he started with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think there's two things that can happen here. And I've heard both, both have value. So it's not either or. One's not more right than the other. But the really plausible ideas are these. Jesus the man felt darkness and the weight of sin and was reminding himself that he was not abandoned, even though he may have felt it. Remember in the garden, he was very aware of God's presence as he prayed. Same here. He's still abiding. In the garden, just before he got arrested, he sensed the presence of Christ in him, or God in him. He sent, he, he, there was a closeness there. It had never left him. But as a man, he may have felt it. So he could have had darkness hit his mind as a human. It's possible. And he was declaring something. Or this could have been happening too. He was declaring that the prophecy of Psalm 22 was happening at that very moment, connecting the dots for his hearers. He could have been declaring, this is it, the time in history you have all known about. Here it is, Psalm 22 has arrived. Because everybody knew the psalm. They knew what it was. Some other people think it's because God can't look upon sin. Remember, the sin of the world was placed on him. We've heard about that. And so some people think that, and I, I, sorry, I used to teach it, and I believed it. Well, God's too holy to look upon sin, right? We've heard that. Well, are you sure? Because, again, like I was taught growing up, when I'm bad or sin, God can't be with me because he can't handle sin. If I go into that place that's sinful, uh, God has to wait outside. <sighs> Come on. And then when you come back in, okay, okay, you're with you again. No, God doesn't do that. Not at all. Take a look at this. In Habakkuk 1.13, it says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Okay, that, that's the line people use. Your eyes are too holy to look at evil. How about you keep reading? Then why do you? Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up the more righteous than they? <laughs> so if you're going to use an old covenant verse that says God can't stand evil, he can't look at it, and then the second half of it says if you, you can't, but then why do you? It would mean, does, is Jesus' standard of deity different than God the Father and the Holy Spirit? Can, can Jesus handle sin, but God can't? Ah, they're the same. We've covered that. That's majorly important. It is Habakkuk who had the incomplete perspective. Habakkuk, the writer, as he wrote at that time in history, a holy book, had an incomplete perspective on who God was. If it were true that God can't look at sin, Jesus has a different standard than the Father? We just talked about that. Is Jesus more merciful than the Father then? Remember, some people have, have said that, you know, Jesus is, is holding the wrath 
of God protecting us. You know, he's, he, he, is, he is our protector because God's so holy and oh, we're so sinful, so he can't even look at us. We're disgusting. So he's got to have Jesus do the thing, you know, and Jesus is our asbestos suit, someone said. Like, really? Yeah, and then they say, love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Yeah, cozy up to him. Which God are we talking about? That one doesn't exist. That one's inconsistent with everything I am now seeing. But the love of God and the love of Jesus and what Jesus revealed. I'm going to use Jesus' own words instead of my own opinions or what I've been taught. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We are the same. Was Jesus loving? You betcha. We just finished hearing weeks of this of Jesus going after people that were in lowly places. He went after those who felt insecure, those with low self-esteem, those living from a false concept of who they are, therefore doing terrible things. He went after them because he saw they were in such darkness and blindness. And he came to give them what? Sight. To reveal the light. He came to save them from sin, and he did it. <sighs> the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with many prophecies of Jesus coming. That's why when Jesus said, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe he was declaring something. I, I like that interpretation far better than God turning his back. I don't believe that at all. Um, but there's also room for, hey, he may have been darkened, but he did not forget God was with him. Because as you're going to see in just a moment, it starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the very end of the psalm says, but he doesn't. But he doesn't. Just like in Habakkuk, you can't stand evil, you can't look at it, but why do you? Same thing goes on here. So concerning the Messiah's birth is in the Psalms. His nature, name, uh, the ministry of the Messiah, what Jesus was going to do. The resurrection exaltation is prophesied in the Psalms. It's all written hundreds of years before Christ. How many are good at prophesying? Writing in advance. You know, if, if somebody said next week this and this is going to happen... We kind of go, yeah, right. And if it does happen, we go, what? Okay, now let's try another one. Let's and see if there's any credibility here. Well, there's a ton of revelations all the way through the Psalms. Even his betrayal and death. We're not going to read these all, don't worry. But uh, if you're on video, you can take a quick screenshot of this. But really, the forsaken, right there, Psalm 22. Uh, all the way through in verse 20, Psalm 22, all these descriptions of what's going on. These Psalms have value. They point to a loving God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Very end. Let's skip over it. For he has not despised, here it is, nor abandoned, abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. He has not abandoned him at all, but when he cried to him for help, he heard. Why would God hear? Because God's in Christ. God is not absent from any of us. Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This is a messianic psalm. All three of them, 22, 23, and 24. This is beautiful. This, this brings credibility that God the Father is good and not to be scared of. That Jesus isn't repelling the wrath of God because of some sacrifice and that he paid for something. What are you talking about? Where, where does it even say that? 
Jesus did not come to change God's mind about humanity. Okay? God and Jesus came to change humanity's mind about the Father. It's the other way around. God is gooder than you've been told. Forsaken? No. Romans 8, we're going to end with this. Romans 8, 35 and 39, to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced. Is that a strong word or is it uh, kind of, you know, lightly persuaded? No, it's a strong word. I am convinced. This This is something deep in me. This is my conviction that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Stop there for a minute. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are loved by him now. There's no such thing as separation. There's an illusion that could be in your mind. You may think and feel he's distant from you, but it's an illusion. It's not true. Are you created by God? A nod would be nice. Good, you're still awake. If you're created by God, he holds you together. You're literally not separated. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now listen to this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Here it is. Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another translation says, which is revealed in Christ. This love that we're talking about, it's revealed in Christ. He's the revealer of this good news. We look to him for that answer. Not church history. You look to Jesus. He's made it really clear. That's my God. That's my Easter celebration. (laughs) Father, thank you.